0: Amen. We just sang about that blessed assurance or trust and now we're going to study or continue studying about that. So welcome all the non-marathon runners. Thanks for being here today. We know everyone else is out uh, running the flying pig. We're going to dive back into Hebrews chapter 11. If you remember where we've been, we've learned in the first couple chapters that faith in Christ, blessed assurance in Christ and his reward was and is the secret of to living from Abel to Noah. Then last week we looked at it was the secret of Abraham and Sarah. Then today we're going to pick up on that, that faith in Christ is the secret, the key, it was and is to living from Abraham to Jacob to Joseph to Moses. And I want to encourage you to do what all of these writers did. I'd like you to set up a heavenly trust fund in your life. Do you have a heavenly trust fund in your mind, in your heart, in your soul that which you forgive from that place, you serve from that place, you suffer from that place, and you give from that place? We've been looking at this word pistis, the word for trust or faith, and you can see that all through history, they set up heavenly trust funds. That the way they obeyed, the way they suffered, the way they avoided temptation was to continue, live from this place of a heavenly trust fund. By faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham. Look, they offered, they took away, they prepared, they obeyed. Sarah got strength from that trust fund. Abraham was tested through that trust fund. Jacob and Joseph and Moses... What his parents did was done from a trust fund. Moses, look at all the deposits he makes in that trust fund. He he forsook Egypt. He kept the Passover. He passed through the Red Sea. What does it look like for you and I to set in our core a heavenly trust fund that we live and give from? I had a friend who moved here to Cincinnati about 15 years ago, and his daughter came home from school. She'd been in the school system about a month, and was about eight years old. He said, honey, what what do you want for your birthday? Mom and I are trying to do some shopping. Can you get us a list? And she said, yeah, I I want a trust fund. (laughs) She didn't know what one was, but all of her friends were talking about how great it was. She had this desire for this invisible thing that she'd heard great rewards from. And that heavenly trust fund is something that's invisible, but People in faith have lived from that heavenly trust fund. And it has empowered them, it has encouraged them, it has given them strength. And So my challenge for us this morning is to live and give from that heavenly trust fund. And I want to give you three truths that come out of that trust fund. My hope is that we're going to learn that uh, there's a reward, right? And the reward is going to be worth it. That, what you're suffering through, what you're going through, what you're living through, God has an incredible reward if you live, obey, and respond from that heavenly trust fund. Let's look at the first truth together. The first truth is uh, a heavenly trust fund requires regular deposits. It would be nice if God said, Trust me once and you're good. But He doesn't, He keeps asking for deposits. And this is so clear in the way the writer of Hebrews describes Abraham. Because Abraham already got mentioned back in verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he went out from the land. But we jump down to where we begin today in verse 17. His name shows up again. By faith Abraham. When he was tested. Another deposit into the heavenly trust fund. Years later. Decades waiting for that son of promise, decades later, God asked for another big deposit into the trust fund when he was tested. When you go through times of testing and God is going to ask you, is what you love most, your son, more important than me? As a Christian, God will continually ask us, have we placed some idol, some replacement God, some good thing, people's approval, Some good thing, money, status, our reputation. Have we taken some good thing and placed it above him? And these moments of testing, he will ask us if we're going to put another deposit into our heavenly trust fund. Now this incident with Isaac, he says, when he was tested, he offered up his son Isaac. And he who had received the promise, this was the promised child, but he offered up his only begotten son. Does that ring a bell? A picture of John three sixteen, where God gave his only begotten son. Everything going on here, Abraham doesn't know it, is a picture of God's love for us. He is part of an eternal story that's going to inspire millions, but all he feels is the test and the requirement for another deposit into the trust fund. How is he going to do it? How is he going to get through this? What is his mindset going to be? Well, I think before we address that, we've got to address the problem, right? What in the world is God doing asking for child sacrifice? Hmm? I got a call from a guy in our church about 10 years ago. He said, My my sister is writing a book about child abuse and how all Christian religion contributes to child abuse. Do you want to talk to her? that sounds great. I love these calls. So sure enough, I got on the phone with her and she said, both the Judaism, Christianity, and the Muslim religion all have at their core Abraham and this story of him sacrificing Isaac. It's no wonder we have so much child abuse. You guys celebrate a moment where a, a father tortures, traumatizes his child by wrapping him up and almost stabbing him with a knife. Man, that's a good question, isn't it? So as we begin to dialogue, I said, well, Hey, great question. I appreciate you bringing it up. I said, there's actually a few things that are worth noting. Um, It doesn't get you all the way there, but it might help. First thing is that God hates child sacrifice. From the fact that life begins in the womb, we see that in Psalm 139, and the Holy Spirit inhabiting John the Baptist in the womb. The Bible's always been about life and the child and the preciousness of it. The whole Bible's against child sacrifice, sacrificing your children to Baal and and sacrificing your children to Moloch. The Bible just is filled with God's love for children. So that's the big story. Whatever's going on here has to be consistent with the thousands of verses that say God hates child sacrifice. said if you go back to Genesis, He uses an interesting word. It says, Abraham leaves his servant behind, and Abraham and Isaac, when they leave these young men behind, they head up and he says, Abraham speaking, the lad and I will go yonder. The word lad is a word for young man. A lot of people picture a 40-year-old Abraham with like, you know, 6-year-old Isaac. But the word lad, is almost for certain he's in his 20s or 30s. The amount of firewood required to make this sacrifice was enormous. And you can see it's Abraham who's 100. I'm not carrying all this firewood. So for sure, Isaac was carrying the firewood. And the amount of firewood required required somebody who was very much strong. So he's probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, based on the word and the context. I said, so we have two men, a young man and a man, making a decision together. Isaac could have easily (laughs) arm-wrestled Abraham and won. They are both, by faith, trusting God. And they knew God hates child sacrifice. So they weren't sure what God was doing or how he was going to get out of that, but they knew they could trust him even though it was hard. It was a test. It was difficult. Well, I was so convincing in that conversation. The book came out two years later and still said that Christians abuse by citing this passage. So I guess i got to work on my explanation. But it helped a little bit to say, okay, she said I never heard that before. That's an interesting new insight. God is testing Abraham. And what's the mindset he has? It tells us. He's like, Listen, I know this is a child of promise. I know God gave me this child. I don't want to prioritize this child over God. But I know God's going to find some way out of this. And he concludes something that's actually incorrect. But he does it by faith. He says, I'm not sure how God's going to get him out of this. But he concluded that probably God is able to raise him from the dead. If I have to kill him, though God doesn't like killing, he'll probably raise him up even from the dead And in one sense, the writer says, he kind of got a resurrected son in a figurative sense, as an analogy. Is that what happened? No. Sometimes we don't know what God's going to do when we're tested, how he's going to work it out, how he's going to fix it. But we still say, by faith, I'm going to trust God climbing up this mountain. And the real test is, will I put anything in my life ahead of God? That's the test. That's the test we'll all have that will require... Additional deposits of trust, you might know the story. let me give you show details of the story from genesis twenty two Remember the original command was "Take your son, your only begotten son, whom you love and did you know this is the first time in the entire Bible the Hebrew word for love is used? First time a picture of love, a picture of father willing to sacrifice a son for a greater good. And then just as he's about to sacrifice his son, the word God, or El, was used in the whole first part of the chapter. And all of a sudden the word Yahweh is used. The angel of Yahweh is used. This is the name used of the Old Testament appearing of Jesus in the Old Testament. He's a messenger of the Lord. He's God appearing as a messenger in human form. It's Jesus. The angel of the Lord... Jehovah called to him from heaven. Do not lay your hand on that lad. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. I know that you will put your trust in me, not some other good thing. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw a ram in the thicket and he offered it up as a burnt offering in, instead of his son. And Abraham called that place what? He called that place blood, sweat, and tears mountain. Oh my goodness, I just about soiled myself when God tested me mountain. No, he calls it the Lord will provide mountain. In fact, the writer says to this day, we still call this mountain the Lord will provide because the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven. See, God was setting up a picture of Jesus. Abraham sacrifices on this mount Solomon builds a temple on this mount Herod rebuilds the temple on this mount and Jesus will be crucified on this mount 1500 years later the father sends his only begotten son and that we deserve death instead of us getting death he offers a sacrifice or a substitute to take our place something innocent dies on our behalf all of this was a picture of glorifying Jesus and God's plan. So when you go through tests, when you go through challenges, and you're tempted to say, I don't know if God is good, I don't know if God can be trusted, I want you to make regular deposits to your heavenly trust fund, knowing that God will provide. You don't know how, you're not sure where, but the Lord will provide. The mount the Lord has provided by faith. He concluded something, he thought about something. I don't know how he's going to do it, I got some theories, but I just know I can count on Think about your blood, sweat, and tear moments. Your challenging chapters in your life. And start viewing all of them as God will provide. And this is another chance to deposit into my heavenly trust fund. Our second truth. Our second truth is that heavenly trust funds require thinking past your death. A trust fund is about thinking beyond this life. And you see that over and over in this section. By faith, Isaac... The guy who was up on the mountain later in life, he's got two sons, Jacob and Esau. He doesn't get to see the promised land. It's not going to come for 400 years. God told Abraham, I got a promise, and your people are going to not see the promise. They're going to be in bondage for 400 years, says it exactly. Then you'll see the promise. So Abraham didn't see it. Isaac didn't see it. But Isaac told his sons about it. When he was dying, he told them about it. So then one of his sons, Jacob gets renamed Israel, also wrestling with Jesus, an angel of the Lord. And when he was dying, thinking beyond his death, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Guys, God's got a plan. God's got a promise. I haven't seen it, but I want to think beyond my death. I want to invest in the next generation and the next generation. I want to tell them that God is trustworthy. So then Joseph, leaning on the top of his staff, worshipped, worshipped, showed the worth- or value, or preciousness of God's promises to the next generation. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, he thought beyond his death, he made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. That might not seem weird to you, but literally, they're not in Egypt in bondage. They're just in Egypt, kind of living in heyday. He's second command to the Pharaoh. He says, listen, I'm second command to the Pharaoh, but God told us it's going to get bad for 400 years. But don't worry. 400 years? Don't worry. God has a promise. And at the end of 400 years, he's going to lead us to the promised land that he told Abraham about and Isaac about and Jacob about. So, let me give you some instructions about my bones. He gave instructions about his bones. Now, archaeologists have found all of these ossuaries or ossuris, um, bone boxes they're called. And so some cultures use mummification, some use catacombs, but some put your bones after the flesh decayed in a bone box. And Joseph's like, we're going to one day be in the promised land. I want to be buried, my bones, in the bone box. He is thinking 400 years in the future. You talk about legacy giving. You talk about impacting generations and generations and generations. He's looking back generations to a promise. He's looking forward multi-generations and saying... Somebody keep my bones in the back of the tent. And when we're in bondage, and we will be, and when we get free, and we will be, somebody yank out my bones and bury them in the promised land, because that's how confident I am that God's going to fulfill his promises. To which we jump to the book of Exodus. And Moses, as they're heading out of Egypt, says, Somebody grab the bones! And they grabbed the bones of Joseph 400 years earlier. He had told them about it, and given instructions. for he had placed the children of Israel past through generations, under a solemn oath: God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here with you." Four hundred years of legacy giving, faith-giving, faith-inspiring. Do you have a bone box? Do you have plans for a legacy bone box in your life? Are you thinking about your life and your legacy, the ability to impact generations? Do you have plans for maybe call it a trust God fund? Are you thinking about the gospel and its ability to impact generations and how you and your future and your descendants and your your leveraging of your time, energy, and money can set up a legacy to impact centuries? quite a challenge. I was talking to a guy recently coming to our church, and his father had set up a, an endowment. And the endowment, he had all of his kids every year have to pray about and discern where God is working, and take some legacy giving he set up, and give it to different priorities, God's priorities in the in the, in the world. Last year, he approached us, and he said, man, I love the gospel. We're, we're called to spread the gospel, the Great Commission and the exploring service we do, there's nothing more gospel-centered than that. And the equipping service, there's nothing more discipleship-centered than that. And, and I've decided, I've prayed about that, I want to give a, a portion of this endowment that my dad set up to the work God's doing here at Horizon. It was just so exciting to hear his dad's vision for his kids and to spread his legacy beyond his death. Another guy came up to me about six weeks ago and he said, Chad, when we were first Christians, my wife and I were giving about one or two percent of our income away. Some to the local church and some to other God's priorities. And we talked to uh, the pastor and he said, is that amount you're giving requiring faith? It was requiring a little faith, but it became a habit. It wasn't really challenging us to grow. And we really decided that day to jump from two percent to ten percent of our giving. It squeezed our budget. It increased our faith. It decreased our choices. We had to prioritize differently. So that was decades ago. And I cannot tell you how that grew our faith. And now we're thinking, toward the end of our life, how do we give in such a way to impact generations? How about you? Do you have a bone box? How do you use the temporal finances you have, maybe set up legacy giving? Maybe it's God's work here at Horizon. Maybe it's God's work in the world. But how do you think like Joseph did? Think about a heavenly trust fund that extends well, well, well beyond your death. Or maybe for you, the response is thinking about your literal bones. We had a, uh, a funeral about a month ago from someone who attends here regularly. He used to sit right over here, Todd. And Todd died from COVID early age in his early 60s. And I got a chance to be part of the funeral. And it was just amazing the joy and sorrow mixed together. We got to hear about how much he served people and loved people and could fix anything. And come over to your house and serve you even though he was really busy at home. And, and how he loved talking about his faith in Jesus. And how he loved playing jokes and practical jokes. And man, it was so clear in that funeral that he had trusting. He was trusting. He told everyone he was trusting Jesus
1: to raise his
0: bones one day. And though he didn't expect his death to come when it came... He wants everybody to know who takes care of your bones, not a hundred years from now, but centuries from now. Money and good works don't defeat death. Are you putting your confidence beyond your death in Jesus? And are you living, dying, and giving from a place of trust? Well, our writer now moves to Moses and gets to our third truth. The third truth is that a heavenly trust fund prioritizes tomorrow's dividends over today's passing withdrawals. It's a lot easier to withdraw some comfort in this life, some some reward in this life. And that's fine. Jesus says you can have your reward or you can wait for the greater reward. And a heavenly trust fund is continually putting a mindset, I'd rather have the greater riches later than the little riches now. And it begins with the story of Moses, his parents specifically. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden. Isn't that interesting? His parents hid him by faith. I thought that sounds fearful. No, they hid by faith. And they hid for three months. His parents did by faith. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. And this is weird. The Bible always mentions Moses is beautiful. To which you're like, well, every parent thinks their kid's beautiful. So it's got to be something more than just, I got a cute kid named Moses. It's mentioned in the book of Acts. As well as here in Hebrews. There seems to be something that it's elegant or he was marked. In the book of Acts, it mentions this idea of elegant or of the city. That there's some kind of maybe physical mark he had on them. They recognize God has a plan for him. Combinators don't know what it is, but there's something physical about Moses mentioned multiple times in the Bible that they recognized so you may not be a Harry Potter fan, you know he's got the little lightning bolt on him. Who knows what it is that Moses? Has? He's got a tattoo, you know the Exodus is R Us. I don't know, but whatever it is, there was something they recognized. God has a plan for our child, so by faith they hid him, and yet they didn't hide in fear, because they did not or were not afraid of the king's command. They were wise to hide, but they were also courageous. You can be both wise and courageous. I was talking to a friend at our church who'd been through a lot of medical challenges over the last couple of years, and she was really wrestling with COVID specifically. She said, you know, I just really don't want to go back through those medical issues, and I'm not sure what to do. And just everybody's so divided, mass, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine, is it safe, is it not? As we talked, we, we talked about two principles. The Bible talks about courage and wisdom. And in this weird, confusing time we're living in, it's hard to know. But we have a tendency to divide, and all the people who think they're courageous call all the other people cowards. And all the people that are being wise call the other people fools. Now I want to encourage you that wherever you are in this journey, all of us as Christians in Christian liberty are trying to mix in the proper dose of wisdom, what's safe for me and my family, and courage. We don't want to live by fear, but we also don't want to be a fool. So there's plenty of differences of opinion in our church and in our world today. In Christian liberty, let's remember here, his parents could hide to be safe while being courageous and not fearing the command. That's part of Christian community. We don't even put our our decisions on these kind of things ahead of the gospel and who we are in Christ. But it wasn't just that. His parents made this decision by faith. But then he kept over and over again prioritizing tomorrow's dividends over today's withdrawals. Look what happens. It's amazing. By faith, Moses then, 40 years old now, he became of age. He refused at that moment his title. He's the Pharaoh's daughter's son. Wow, that's pretty nice. But he didn't prioritize the dividends of his title, the dividends of his position and his family when it came time he chose to suffer affliction with the people of god rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin when you face temptation are sin is fun that's why we do it they're just passing pleasures they're temporary pleasures that lead you into a ditch when you face temptation will you take the temporary withdrawal or you prioritize becoming the person god has for you in eternity And it wasn't just that. Look what it says. It says he esteemed. The word esteemed means to count precious or to count worthy or to count valuable. He kept counting valuable, not his titles, not his position, not his comfort, not the fact that I'm not a slave. Must have been pretty nice. He kept saying, I'd rather suffer affliction because he counted precious or valuable the reproach of Christ. Now, how weird is that? He's living at 1500 B.C., Jesus doesn't show up till 0 to 33 A.D. Yet a writer tells us when he was doing this, he was thinking about the Messiah. And he was prioritizing Christ, Moses. And by thinking about it, he was prioritizing the greater riches, the future dividends, the greater reward. Rather than the treasures. There were a lot of treasures in Egypt. A lot of nice things in Egypt. But he kept looking forward to the greater treasure to come. It doesn't finish there. He continues by faith. More deposits. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. You read the story, it's like, well, maybe fear feared a little bit. But even in his fear of running away for 40 years, he still has some confidence in God. For he endured those feelings. He endured those times, seeing him who's invisible. I'm going to keep trusting. I'm going to keep trusting. Future dividends. By faith, he kept the Passover. Does this make sense? We just killed a nice animal I could have eaten, and now I'm eating it, and now I'm spreading blood over the door, and that's going to invisible, save me from the angel of death. God said, do it. It worked! By faith. They passed through the Red Sea, as dry land. The Egyptians attempted to do so were drowned. He just kept, throughout his life, making regular deposits to that faith account, regular prioritization of, of God's plan, God's riches over his riches. The culture's riches. Think of it like this list. What does it look like for you to trust tomorrow's dividends? Are you living in fear? Are you afraid of everything? Afraid of people not liking you? Afraid of losing your job? Afraid, 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 afraid. God wants you to move from today's fear to esteeming or counting the riches of Christ to motivate your life, to live from that trust fund? Have you made yourself all about your titles? He refused to be called a son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he esteemed something else, tomorrow's dividends. Are you giving in to temptation? It's because it's not that temptation isn't fun. It's you haven't valued something as more valuable, greater value. Does money control you? Do you have a lot of anxiety about money, even though you've got more than you ever thought you'd have? Or maybe you have less than you ever thought you'd have. It doesn't matter. You still have anxiety. Because you've valued or esteemed that as your source of security, rather than esteeming the greater reward in heaven. Where are you at? Kierkegaard has an interesting challenge. He says sin is building your identity on anything besides God. You are far more than people's approval. You're far more than the comfort you find in life. You're far more than the houses you live in and the cars you drive. Those are all great things. But sin is when that becomes who you are. And you don't build your identity on who you are in Christ, an heir to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So here's my challenge to you. I want you to develop a plan in two areas. What does it look like for you this week to live from a place of heavenly trust fund. I don't know what that looks like, but maybe you say, okay, I want you to think of a specific area. Maybe you say, I, I want to forgive. I'm not forgiving. I'm not living forgiving because I can't trust that God forgave me and forgave me so much more and so I'm having trouble forgiving the two little pennies even though I've been forgiven millions. Maybe you need to forgive somebody from your heavenly trust fund. Maybe you're climbing up blood, sweat, and tears mountain. You're being tested and part of living is saying, God, the Lord will provide in this test. I'm going to keep trusting you. Maybe if you're going through a challenging time in a relationship, challenging time in your marriage, and you need to endure by faith. You need to bless your enemies by faith. But I want you to come up with a plan this week, one specific area that you're going to live by faith from that heavenly trust fund. Then, secondly, I want you to challenge yourself. What is one way I can give out of my total confidence in esteeming the riches of Christ? What would it look like for you to grow your faith and to have that faith express itself in giving because you're so confident in esteeming the riches of Christ? What would that look like for you? How would that affect your calendar? How would it affect your wallet? Came across a tool several years ago, I think it's worth considering when you think about giving from your heavenly trust fund. Here's kind of different stages of giving. Some of us are abstaining from giving financially. To anywhere. Maybe just a horizon, maybe any place. And I would just ask you, are you abstaining by faith? Meaning, is there a, a reason why? You're going through a difficult chapter in your life, and you are. I'd say, you know what? God bless you, and, and let us all just, you know, just know that's a difficult chapter, and by faith, you're just trying to make it. And I would say, God love you, and let us know how we can, how we can come alongside you. Others, of us, we've been abstaining, and it's not by faith. It's just from neglect. We've, we're not growing in the grace of giving, as Paul says. I know many people in our church, they've moved to tipping. You know, can i of got some money in the pocket. I'll drop it in the offering box on the way out. And they've done that by faith. It was a big move for them to start giving financially to God's work. They believe in the gospel. They believe in the bride of Christ. And that tipping was a huge step of faith. Other people have moved to percentage giving. And I'm telling you, if you've never gone to percentage giving, this will grow your faith. Whether you're giving 1% or 3%, it's a percent of something. Every time you, you write a check for eight percent, you're reminded, oh, this is a percent of look at how good God's been to me. You think about the whole when you give a percentage of the whole. It grows people. I've just seen it over and over and over. And if you've given a percentage giving, but you've never challenged yourself to move to a, a tie, the full 10%, whoo, that'll grow your faith. That'll affect your choices. That'll affect your prioritization. It'll grow your faith in a way that few things were. And then very few people, like I probably know a handful of people, have dared to trust God with, called sacrificial giving giving well beyond the 10%. Some to a local church, some to other priorities, some to God's prompting, some through massive amounts of adoption they're doing in their family. All kinds of different ways, but a huge, multi-percentage impact. And I've heard people say, I have never grown so much as when I moved into sacrificial giving. So here's my challenge to you. Where are you currently at? And are you doing it by faith? And if so, well done. Keep it up. Keep living out of that. Keep giving out of it. Where are you? If it's not growing your faith, if it's not forcing you to have deeper confidence in God, what does it look like for you to take a step and move to whatever step grows your faith? And I hope one of the places you give is to God's bride, the church here at Horizon, because you believe in what we're doing and equipping people in the gospel. If God prompts you, I hope it goes well beyond just the church. I hope the bride is one of those priorities. But I hope this journey and this prayer and this challenge challenges you to grow your faith. Because that's what this passage is about. We've talked in this series about the fact that as a church, we believe in people's individual step, one by step, in their journey to faith, right? People take one step at a time, one step at a time. And as a church, we invest in people with our time, invest in people with our money, invest in people with our energy, As a church, we create exploring environments, like our our 11 o'clock service and certain small groups. We create connecting environments, Ken Kington event, gatherings, golf outings, and, and, and people serving together down at City Gospel Mission. And we create equipping environments. We go verse by verse through the Bible. And I'm telling you, when you are sacrificing, when you are giving, when you are serving, for those of you who serve weekly, I want to say thank you. Because what you're doing and what you're giving and what you're spending your time in is environments that God uses to change people's lives. In fact, recently we got to hear the story of a good friend of mine, Colin Hill, who shared how God has done exactly that in his heart. Let's watch his story together.
1: In high school, when my brother was in middle school, he met some guys uh, that were attending youth group here at Horizon. And he kept coming home after Sunday service. Uh, we weren 't attending at the time, and he would come home and tell us all about how much fun he was having and really encouraging us to come and so I said, "Hey, if you know my brother is enjoying this this much and it's been really beneficial for him, uh, you know i 'll go and i 'll check it out and So we came to the exploring service, which is just as it 's described it 's meant to be approachable and where you can ask questions and be curious and I did that for a while, and it was just a fun fun place to um, not feel uh, it forced on you. It was more of, here's what we're learning in the book today and how it really relates to you. And I liked that aspect. It wasn't, here it is, now go home and read it. It was, here it is, now let's talk about how it really impacts you in your life. And I thought that that was a much more approachable way to uh, attack your faith. So I would say as my journey continued, um, I came to meet my now wife, Alex. Um, She's my partner for life, love her. And, uh, she was very strong in her faith growing up and has kept that all through our dating life and into our marriage. And she really encouraged me in uh, in asking those questions and being curious. And what I thought was, um, something I don't really share a lot is that she would say, you know, I don't have the answers, but you, you know, we have this church community at horizon and people that are approachable. And I had already started asking questions of Drew and Chad. And I thought, um, well, I'm going to, uh, my initial thought was I'm going to challenge them because I feel skeptical about things. And I hate that word skeptical, but that's, that's really the best way to put it. And I would try and say, well, what about this? And what about that? And the way that they handle those questions and you guys, you light up and you're excited, you, you see it as a challenge and you can't wait to, to take on that question. And that made me excited to learn the answer and to learn. And And it usually shifted. It would be it's not the question. You need to think about it in this way, those aha moments. And we've had so many great moments, whether it's here at Horizon or, you know, in group or just at lunch and where the light bulb clicks. And that made me comfortable to, okay, I can ask questions. And then this guy, Ken Kington came and spoke. And, uh, you know, I don't know if people have heard of him, but he spoke at church and he's a comedian and it was funny. And it was, again, lighthearted and approachable. And then he did Authentic Manhood. And that was a series that we did here with uh, several different iterations um, where guys can come and listen to Ken speak. And then there's breakout questions. And that first couple table talks there, I wouldn't say awkward, they're different, but you feel comfortable after a while because you realize all these guys around the table have the same questions you do. Feeling comfortable in my faith and deciding, yeah, this is this is who I am. I am a, a follower of Christ, um, and we had talked about baptism for a long time. I think what really led me to baptism was that piece of knowing the questions don't have to stop. And I kind of contextualize that in everyday life. You know, what I do for a living, we have continuing education as part of our job. Um, I never stop learning. If I stop learning, I don't do my job right. Baptism is, to me, um, pro, you know professing that faith to your friends and family, um, but what was really rewarding about my baptism was looking around afterwards at everyone standing around that pool and realizing, okay, I've shared my faith with them, but now they're a part of that faith journey, and they're there for those questions. They're there. They came there to see this happen, and it's you know I, I used to think that baptism was kind of a selfish thing until I understood what it really meant. It's not about me; <laughs> it's me making it about God and my relationship with Him. Isn't that awesome? You know, I got a chance
0: to be in a small group with uh, some 20-year-olds a couple years ago. My wife and I did, and we got just walked through lots of 20-year-olds and the impact that was going on in their life. And So I just want to say thanks. Just Look at all the things mentioned there, exploring environments and connecting environments. and So for all of you who set up for a baptism, thank you. You were part of that. For all of you who, who greeted people at the door, who handed out programs, for all of you who were there the day that uh, you were maybe leading one of the groups in the men's ministry, God is using our environments to transform people's lives. Friends of mine. And there's so many stories I can't tell you about because we so honor people's confidentiality. There's probably like 50 stories going out at all times, and I'm like, oh, I can't say that yet. But let's thank God that He is using us, this place, to change the world as we esteem Christ and look to the greater reward. Father, thank you. Thank you for this place. We can love your, your word, we can dig into the book of Hebrews for six months, we can look forward to how your Holy Spirit works through easy passages and difficult passages to draw people to you and transform us into the image of Jesus. Teach us how to live and give from that heavenly trust fund. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.